Well, welcome back to the Comic Book Historians Podcast. I'm Alex Grant with my co-host, Jim Thompson. Today, we have a really fun guest, publisher, comic book historian, childhood comic fan extraordinaire, Gary Groth. Gary, thanks for being with us today. Happy to be here. So I know you were born in 1954, a son of a Navy contractor. You were actually born in Buenos Aires? I was born in Buenos Aires. My dad was in the Navy, and I was born there because he was on active duty, and he was stationed in Buenos Aires. Yeah. And then was he still in the Navy when you moved to Springfield? Yeah, he was. He, he was in the Navy for about 30 years. Let me see. Let me work, walk that back. He joined the Navy, I think, in 39, and so that means he would have retired from the Navy in 69, so I think that's approximately right. From Buenos Aires, we moved to Williamsburg, Virginia, and uh, I was about two. How long were you in Williamsburg? Until I was five. So I think we were there about three years. And then we moved to Springfield, Virginia, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C. I was spent my first 25 years in uh, Richmond, Virginia. So I'm so I, down the road. Yep, I know. But very different still. You, you guys were less Confederate than we were back in Richmond. Well, the whole the whole Washington, D.C. area is, is sort of an oasis in Virginia. I mean, you, you drive 20 minutes south and you're in uh, the Confederacy. Yep. But Jim is in no way affiliated with that now. I'm an expatriate, pretty much. But uh, but I did grow up there. Where do you live now? Uh, Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah, I, I moved out here in 1985. I've lived here longer than I ever lived in Richmond. Yeah, yeah. Same here in Seattle. I've, here, I've lived here longer than any place I've ever lived, including, you know, my upbringing in Virginia. So you were pretty close to your father then, it sounds like, because he was part of your kind of pop culture upbringing, wasn't he, in some way? Well, yes. I mean, he, he was, you know, he was, he was of his generation, World War II generation. You know, he died five years ago at the age of 99. So he had me when he was 39, I think. So he was a little older. You know, and I was kind of an oddball kid, and I don't think he quite understood because he grew up in Queens. He was born in Queens, and his ambition was to be shortstop for the New York, I don't know if I'm going to get it right, like the New York Dodgers, I don't know. It was like a New York baseball team, and that was his, that was his ambition in life, which he didn't fulfill, which is why he joined the Navy when he was 19 or 20. And I had no interest in sports. Uh, I couldn't do sports, was terrible at them. It was the worst thing I experienced in high school. And so I retreated into comics. And he never read comic books. He read comic strips. So he didn't quite understand what I was doing, but he understood the passion And I think he understood that if we were going to be close and if he was going to be part of my life, he was going to be part of that. And he was very supportive. I mean, both my parents were very supportive. But he helped a lot doing the nuts and bolts work when I put out a fanzine when I was 13 years old. He did all the bookkeeping, which he was very good at. He was very meticulous, which which I am not. Very detail-oriented. And he kept the ledgers and he kept the books. You know, I I put out a fanzine. I'm sure you're going to get there. I put out a fanzine when I was 13, and uh, I mean, it started off as a kind of typical, terrible fan-worshipping little fanzine. We would call we, we called them crudzines back then, and he kept all the books. He, 
you know, we would get orders in and I think it was, I think it cost 50 cents. And so people would send quarters taped to cardboard <laughs> and uh, we would open those envelopes and we would take the quarters out and he would very meticulously put them in a ledger, put the name of the person and we would have to mail the person the fanzine and he would probably handle a lot of that. When I printed the fanzine, we would go to his office and they had a Xerox machine there. And that's when Xerox machines were much more rare. People didn't own Xerox machines, companies and governments own Xerox machines. So we would go to his office and Xerox my fanzine and we would come home and we would staple it together. We would staple the fanzines together, together. So he was, you know, he was very much supportive and very, very much a part of, of what I did back then. You know, he, he also, another big component of our lives was that he basically introduced me to movies. Every Saturday or Sunday, after he got home from playing golf, we would go see a movie. You know, we'd get in the car and go see a movie. And, you know, back then in the 60s, they didn't really make movies for kids. You know, there were a few, but primarily they, they did not cater to children. And so what I saw were the same movies that he saw, and they were like war movies, they were detective movies, mysteries. I mean, they starred John Wayne and Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster, that whole generation of actors. And that's probably where I discovered my great love of film, by going to see a movie every, every weekend. Yeah, I, I want to talk about that a little bit. And I, I had the same experience because you didn't have the other distractions. And so dad would take me to see High Plains Drifter or something, you know, when I'm like completely inappropriate to go see it. I saw that with my dad. I'm a little older than you are because I was more or less a grown up. I was probably about 21 or 22 when I saw that. And I actually took my dad to see that movie. Yeah, that's I, I remember that one as, as, as one. And that would, be, that would be pretty inappropriate for a kid. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to, we're talking about the fanzine era, but I want to go back in time a little bit and talk about Metal Man number five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us, tell us what that, the significance of that. Well, I discovered that comic in my pediatrician's office. I wouldn't say I was a sickly child, but I had asthma. And I also had allergies, both of which I still have. And I would go to the pediatrician's office and get allergy shots every week or two. And I think I discovered that comic sitting in his office. They had a pile of comics sitting there. And it, it is the first comic I distinctly remember seeing. And I forget what, I don't know, you, you probably know what year that comic was. Oh, yeah, I did my 64. 64, okay. It, yeah. was, a, uh, it was a January... A December-January release, and so you would have been nine. Right, right. I, I might have read, I don't know, I might have read comics, some comics before that. I have vague memories of reading comics like Hot Stuff and Richie Rich and that whole line of, of kids' comics, and I don't know, I can't remember where that fell, if it fell before that or after that. But it was, you know, it was that Metal Men comic that was a, uh, a revelation to me. Yeah, I read that from there you just were all in. I just went apeshit. Yeah, I just I just started buying comics. And of course, I started buying DC comics. Now, did the Gorilla covers help you go more apeshit over the comics you're reading? They did not. I was, I was not aware of the Gorilla trend, <laughs> although it was apparently happening, you know, when I was in, in prime comics buying uh, mode. But no, but, I, you know, but, but, you know, that was part of that whole goofy DC period, which I, you know, I probably enjoyed. Right. I think it was anyway. You were kind of DC focused for that first year, but by 65, 
66, you moved to Marvel pretty much, right? Yeah, it probably took a couple of years. You know, I'll tell you one funny story. I, it's possible the first Marvel comic I bought was Strange Tales, which, as I'm sure you know, they split the comic between the Human Torch and another character. Was it the thing? It was uh, Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange and the Human Torch. And I think I actually bought that comic because I had mistaken the Human Torch for the Flash. Yeah. I mean, they're both red, so they seem like the same character. So I remember buying it, taking it home, and reading it, and realizing this was a different reading experience. You know, it was just all, all the rhythms of the Marvel comics were entirely different. The drawing was different. DC's drawing was much more domesticated. There was something cruder about Marvel. And DC, weren't they kind of subsumed in that smooth New York Dan Barry type aesthetic? That yeah, a lot of, you know, a lot of Chris was a little Swan, Wayne Boring. Yeah. They were much slicker than Marvel. And so I, I noticed that intuitively. I mean, I was probably, whatever, 12 or something. But then I realized that there was, this, there was this whole other comics brand out there. And I started picking up on, on those. And gosh, the first Fantastic Four I bought was number 33. And again, I don't know what year that was, but it was probably around 65 or something like that. And you started doing mail order, catching up on the earlier issues, right? Yeah, I, I had to have all the early issues I'd missed, which I eventually got. So I would order them by mail. They had a lot of dealers back then, and, and you, would, you would order them by mail. One of the great moments of my life is when my folks drove me to Passaic, New Jersey. There was a place called the Passaic Book Company, and I would order comics from them. And that's when, you know, you could order a back issue of Spider-Man for like a dollar or two dollars, something like that. So it wasn't outrageous. And I would order a couple of comics and then I would be utterly thrilled. I'd be waiting for like a week for the comic to arrive in the mail. And of course, when it got there and just opening that package was, was so exciting. And so somehow I talked my parents into driving to Passaic, New Jersey. It was, you know, a little family outing and it was probably a round trip in one day. And they were a big back issue comics dealer. And they might have been a book dealer, just a general book dealer as well. But they had this one gigantic room with nothing but comics in it. And it just blew my mind. I mean, I was like 14 or 15 at the time. And I remember going in there. I mean, it was just pig heaven. I guess I, I didn't have enough money to buy all the comics I needed to buy. But that was that was great. But yeah, I did. I was I, I collected. Uh, you know, I would buy back issues mostly of Marvel. I don't remember buying back issues of DC. I think I was more addicted to Marvel, and I was more obsessed with Marvel. Now, were you only reading superhero stuff at this point? Like not their westerns or their romance or? Anything? No, I was reading every single Marvel comic. I was reading uh, all their westerns. I even bought Millie the Model, which I had. Obviously, I did no too. interest in <laughs> Patsy, but I would read Patsy and Hetty, something like that. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just because it was a Marvel comic, and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to keep abreast of all the Marvel comics. I mean, I joined, you know, I joined the Marvel marching, the Marvel Mary marching society. Oh, yeah. You're one of yeah. those guys. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Got no prizes. I, I had outgrown it by the time Foom came around, so I did not join that. But yeah, there was a period of three or four years, you know, when I happily drank the Kool-Aid. You had mentioned your dad read comic strips. Were you interested in those as well? Marginally. I would read comic strips, but 
I like the longer form narrative of comics, even the DC comics, which were, were I think, almost all self-contained stories, as opposed to the Marvel serialized soap opera. So I think I like the longer stories. I mean, I could read the Sunday newspaper strips, and I, and I, I kind of dug them, but if you read a 22-page Stanley Jack Kirby story, it's got so much more satisfaction to it than reading a very, you know, than, than reading a, a third of a page or a half page story in the newspaper. So I never really picked up that habit. I learned everything I knew about newspapers a little bit later. Now, did you quit Marvel before Kirby and Ditko left or no. was it around their departure that helped end it? Well, Ditko left around 69. No, Ditko left Marvel in like 65, six, no, 66, 66. Did he leave that early? Yeah, okay. then Kirby left in 70. Wally Wood yeah, left. Kirby left later. Ditko, Kirby yeah. left in 70. Yeah, no, I didn't. I kept reading Marvels. Let me see. Well, no, I mean, I kept reading Marvels through high school and I graduated in 72. So I probably kept reading through about 72. I mean, I have to, I have to tell you, like, I got less interested in the comics themselves when I was putting out this fanzine than I was in the artists and in producing the fanzine. I know that sounds paradoxical, but I think I became less fanatically interested in reading the comics in the last year or two of, of my high school than I was about being in the involved in this fandom and 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 following the very specific artists that I was and and starting to know the artists I met. I started meeting artists when I was I don't know fourteen or fifteen. How'd that how'd that all start? I mean, let us about fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm going to get to that, Alex, in a minute. I just want to do one or two things and then get to the fan scene. Every piece on you that I read that was sort of generic would say influences Pauline Kael and Andrew Saris. And my question is, don't you have to pick a side? How do you do both Pauline Kael and Saris? And if that's true, do you lean towards Saris and are you an auteur theory person? Okay. Well, now this is later. This is like in my 20s. And uh, yes, I did pick a side. Now, the side, the side for me was not between Saris and Kale. It was between John Simon and Stanley Kaufman and Pauline Kale and Andrew Saris. So we're talking about film criticism in the 1970s. This gets very complicated. <laughs> Saris and Kale clashed. I mean, but almost all of the critics who worked in the 1970s, started in the 1960s, they worked in the 1970s, they were all clashing with each other. But there were camps. And, I, you know, I was in the John Simon, Stanley Kaufman camp, which was, I think, the more literary side of film criticism. Whereas Pauline Kael, Andrew Saris, well, do you know, do you know a critic named Vernon Young? Yes. Okay. Well, he, again, would have been in the, in the Simon Kaufman. Manny Farber, I thought, straddled, you know, the middle. Somewhere, he was somewhere in the middle. Boy, he could write, though. I'm a big fan of Manny Farber's. Yeah, he was terrific. I mean, they were, all, they were all good. But I do think I do think the best writers, the best writers, quad writers, were Simon and Kaufman. I mean, Kale could write, but, you know, and I love to engage Kale. But there was something about Kale that bothered me. She would tend to write more around movies than about them. Whereas I thought... Simon just nailed it. I mean, he would just, you know, he was so precise in his criticism and agreeing or disagreeing with the critic was not ever the point because I could profitably disagree with all of these guys. 
So I deliberately skipped to that because it seemed to me that as much as comics and the influence of comics, as we were talking about, the influence of these particular people helped you formulate your ambitions and your style as it relates to comics. So I, I thought it was important. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely true. You know, I, the first film critic I encountered was Dwight McDonald, who wrote for Esquire magazine. Oh, that was when you were in college that first, the, your professor had you read all of Esquire. Yes, yes. You've done, you've done some research. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I had a, uh, it was a community college. It was after my first year of college and I was flailing around. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And so when you don't know what you want to do with your life, you take a creative writing class. And I think that's what this was. It was actually a creative writing class. You know, really, I didn't know anything about writing. I mean, all, all the writers I'd read were just second rate pulp writers. I'd read Robert E. Howard. I mean, I couldn't distinguish good writing from bad writing. So I took this course and this guy whose name I no longer remember, he really opened my eyes to what good writing was. And one of the things he told us to do is to read Esquire. And I think, I think at that time, that would have been like 1973, at that time, Esquire was, was running a lot of great writers. They had Dwight McDonald writing film criticism, I think Nora Ephron had a column. I forget who wrote the literary column. It might have been James Wolscott, might have been. It was, you know, it was a writer's magazine at that time. And it really suddenly opened my eyes to what good writing was. And so I would read Dwight MacDonald, and then I would go out and, re and buy his book of film criticism. And then John Simon took over from Dwight MacDonald, and that's how I started reading John Simon. And then I would buy his book of film criticism. The first book of his I read was Movies into Film. And that was eye-opening because here was somebody who clearly had an enormous amount of expertise, who was an extraordinarily good writer, and who was applying these honed critical skills to film, something that I hadn't truly considered before. And of course, that's what led me to thinking, well, why aren't, you know, why isn't someone applying these same skills to comics? And that had been done erratically in the past, and very, very rarely, and we can talk about that. But that's what opened my eyes. And then, of course, and then John Simon, you know, he, he did a big essay in Movies and the Film about Pauline Kael. Oh, yeah. You know, where he attacked her essay, which was called Movies and Trash and whatever it was called. And then I thought, of course, I thought, well, who's Pauline Kael? And I had to go out and buy her books. So I would I would take notes about who all of these, you know, Dwight McDonald and John Simon and then Pauline Kael, and I would take notes about who they're writing about. If John Simon mentioned Susan Sontag, I would have to go out and find out who she was. Yep. It's it's just one one leads to another. Yeah. yeah. Let's go back to when you're 14, before you know any of this, but you you're starting your publishing career to some degree at that point. And I read that by the time you were 17, you were telling your parents you wanted to be a publisher. Well, that's true. Yeah, I think I wanted to be a publisher because the, the first college I went to was the Rochester Institute of Technology. And the only reason I went to that is because, you know, my parents had not gone to college. And so they really didn't know how to navigate finding a college. And so we were looking for a college that taught publishing. Well, there, there was no such college. There were, I don't think there were university courses about publishing. And so the Rochester Institute of Technology was the closest thing we could find to publishing because they specialized in teaching printing technology. Now, in fact, of course, printing technology has nothing to do with actually publishing. 
but neither I nor my parents knew that at the time. So that's why I went there, because I wanted to be a publisher. After a year there, I realized that was not really training me to be a, to be a publisher, and that there was no training you could have that would make you a publisher except being in publishing. And I think that might be, in retrospect, why I started kind of floundering around, because I didn't know how, didn't know how to be a publisher. I knew, I knew how to publish a fanzine and make no money, you know, out of my parents' bedroom, but I didn't know how to become a publisher. And I have some questions about the Rochester Institute and also your journalism aspect where you're working on a magazine. But before I do that, I still want to do a fantastic fanzine because uh, that's obviously important that you started in 14 and you had people like Tony Isabella and Mark Evanier and artists like Dave Cockrum before he went professional. You were getting art from Neil Adams to Bill Everett. How was this happening when you were age 14? And talk a little bit about that aspect? Well, I didn't have any hesitancy in writing to artists. And I would write to them, I would initially write to them in care of uh, Marvel and DC. And apparently they would, the companies would forward the letters because I, I seem to remember, I, I ran an interview with John Romita, I think in like 1968 or something like that. And that was done entirely by the mail. I sent him, you know, I sent him a letter and introduced myself and then sent him questions and he would answer them. And so I just started doing that. Was that to the Marvel offices or like to his address? Well, I wrote to the companies and then they, and they would forward, I would write, you know, John Romita in care of Marvel Comics and they would evidently forward them. And then I would get a, then I would get a letter straight from the artist, whether it was John Romita or uh, Gene Colan or any number of other artists, and then their return address would be on it, their personal address, and then I would start writing to them from then. That was before you could really make phone calls. You know, phone call, long-distance phone calls cost a lot of money. And uh, my parents were very uh, supportive, but they weren't that supportive. So uh, I couldn't make any phone calls, but I, could, but I could write to them. And so I started doing that. You know, I started actually meeting artists. Well, I went, I went to the, you know, 1969 New York Comic Art Convention. My dad drove me up there. My dad's parents lived in New York. They still lived in Queens. So we could combine this trip that he must have considered this wacky exercise. Is that the one that uh, Hal Foster and Gil Kane were there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you were at that dinner, right? With all those tables, that famous picture? Luncheon, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was fantastic. That was, that was, that was a fantastic convention. I mean, I just, I met all of these people whose work I'd read. And, uh, and I mean, Gil Kane and... You know, I know I knew who Hal Foster was, but I didn't know him that well. But that, but you know, that was my introduction to him, really. And and all of these cartoonists were there. Al Williamson was was there. I knew who he was, and I would meet them, and I would get their, you know, I would I would get their autographs. You know, so that was kind of a that was a real seminal influence on me because I, I because they were real. They, you know, they were real people. It's like a pilgrimage in a way, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I couldn't have been more thrilled. And then that encouraged me to put on my own convention in Washington, which I did. I think I put on a convention in 1970. That's the MetroCon. Yeah. 70 and 71, I think. You did two yeah, years. Yeah, 70 and 71. Yeah. And years, you interviewed right. like uh, people like Sal Bushima and stuff doing that, right? Yeah. Well, Sal Bushima lived in um, Springfield. And he was one of the earliest cartoonists I met because he lived, you know, he lived about 20 blocks away from me. And I somehow learned that he lived in Springfield, which I couldn't believe. So I somehow mustered up the courage to give him a call. And he was incredibly gracious and incredibly patient. I was probably about 15. He let me come over to his place and, you know, on a Saturday 
or a Sunday. And we would just, he would just sit down with me for a couple of hours and talk to me. And of course, I would pepper him with all kinds of idiotic questions about what he was working on and the Avengers and, you know, the characters he was doing and who he liked to ink him and on and on and on. You know, and I would do this every six months for as much, you know, for, for uh, I'd have to muster up the courage to give him a call again because I knew I was imposing and wasting his time. And then each time he would say, yeah, come on over. And, you know, we can sit down. He gave me a lot of original art. He gave me a lot of pencil pages that were never published. Oh, wow. Yeah, he would, he would self-reject them. He would do a page, and then he wouldn't like the storytelling or, or, or the drawing or something. And he would just say, would you like to have this? And, of course, I do. I did. And uh, I still have those pages. Oh, how fun. That's great. And he did very complete pencils, I have to say. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I had read that he was in the military, and that's why he was at that Washington, D.C. area. And that's why he ended up living close to there. He developed a lot of bonds in that area. And that's cool. You were, you happen to be right there. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, he was literally like a five-minute drive away. And so then when you were talking to different creators like this, and then like you said, with the comic art convention, did you then start to feel pretty comfortable as a journalist in a way, like a budding journalist that, that I can talk to these people, I can get answers, I can be inquisitive with them? Is that the attitude that started to develop around that time? I don't know if I formulated coherent enough thought to think of myself as a journalist. I mean, I was just such a passionate fan. I got you. That I wanted to do this. And I, I'm not sure at that point I considered myself a journalist or what I was doing journalism. You know, it was just, it was just fan activity. Right. And your dad sounds like he facilitated it. He, uh, he wanted you to get into something fun like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, you know, I, of course I couldn't put on a convention at the age of 16 without an adult signing certain documents. So he was very involved in that. And, you know, when I put on the convention, that's when I really had to interact with professionals and that's when I had to talk to them and cut deals with them. And, you know, I had to get people to come down from New York to Washington to go to this convention, which means I had to give them a room and I had to arrange their travel. And I had to, I had to, you know, appear like I knew what I was doing. And that's when I started really being introduced to a lot of professionals that had a big impact on my life. You know, people like Bernie Wrightson and Mike Kaluta, you know, that whole generation. Right. And they're, and those are true artists as well, right? They could do fine art even. Yeah. Well, they were, you know, they were great. They were, they were a new generation. They were about five, six, seven years older than me, which at that time meant a lot. I mean, they were like grownups and they were forging their lives and they represented something new in comics. I don't think I probably had the wherewithal at that time to realize the differences that they were bringing to comics, but, you know, they sort of eschewed the whole hack ethos. You know, comics was really a hack media. Well, they had the same guys doing comics for like 30 years up to that point, right? Yeah, yeah. And as you probably know, Marvel and DC, there, were, there was a period of a decade where they weren't hiring any new artists. They got all the artists they needed. Yeah, I read I read this um, Stan Lee interview where he was like, "Oh, only uh, there's no new artists in, but oh, we got this new guy, uh, Jim Steranko, kind of a fan that likes comics. He turned out pretty good." That was a 1968 interview. How'd you feel about Steranko when he came on the scene? Oh my God, I love Steranko. I mean, I, I worshipped his work. I mean, unfortunately, I worshipped him. Tell us about that interview with him and that fantastic fanzine and how you guys met and. Tell us about that a bit. Well, you know, I'm not, yeah, I can't remember how we met. I probably met him at a convention. I have a lot of photos of him that I took 
So I deduced from that that I probably met him in 69 or 70 or 71 at a convention. I was a huge fan of his work, as you know, many of us were. I mean, he was doing work that looked innovative at that time. I mean, in retrospect, I think it's a little, you know, it's, it's less so. But, you know, he was doing work that, you know, was fresh and interesting. And he was breaking out of the conventional comics format. You know, Marvel was pretty much a child of Kirby. So every artist drew in the uh, in the Kirby mode. And even though you can see a lot of Kirby and Steranko, you know, he brought a lot of, uh, of other influences to it. And so, you know, he looked like this amazingly fresh talent. And as you could probably tell from your own interview with him, he builds an aura of, you know, he creates his own mystique. And he had that mystique going for him then. You know, he was younger than most of the professionals at that time. He would rock around conventions in uh, turtleneck sweaters and pink jumpsuits and wrap around sunglasses. And he kind of hulls this self-mythology everywhere he goes. And I was mesmerized by him and his work. It's a little like uh, escaping a cult, finally, when you realize, well, there's less to this than meets the eye. So I, I met him, yeah, I met him in 70 or 71. I mean, as you probably know, I worked for him in 73, I think. 73, We're going to yeah. get to that in a few minutes. But, you know, yeah, I did, I, you know, in the interview, I, I did the interview with him. My dad drove me up to Reading, Pennsylvania. I was 16. I mean, you, you know, you, you can probably track these dates better than I can. I think I was 16. Yeah, 1970. He was right when he left Marvel and he was venting about Saul Brodsky and things like that. But he had done a cover of the preceding issue that was inked by Joe Sennett. That was uh, issue 10, and then 11 was the interview. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. I actually, what happened is he didn't do that cover for my fanzine. He, um, I, I bought a pencil rendition from him. And because I also befriended Joe Sennett, I asked Joe if he would ink it. And Joe, who is an absolute sweetheart and whose interview I put up on the, the Comics Journal um, website last week, the interview um, that I did with him, with two of my friends, I asked Joe if he would ink it because I thought all pencils should be inked. And I, he inked it, then I ran it on the uh, fanzine. And then I interviewed, subsequently, I interviewed Storanko. I, my dad drove me up to Reading. I interviewed Storanko during the day. And I think into the early evening, my dad just dropped me off and, and left us. You know, there's this, the whole Stranko experience. He lived in a small apartment. It had kind of muted lighting. There was some soft jazz playing in the background. It was kind of Chet Baker-ish. It sounds exactly like him, yeah. I, I know that experience, yeah. And, you know, and it was, yeah, it was the whole experience. It was 1970, you say, so I would have been 15 or 16, depending on what on when in 1970. And, you know, it, it was great. I mean, he, you know, he, he tolerated me, which was nice. I mean, uh, you know, I was, I was a worshipful fanboy, so it probably wasn't too hard to tolerate me. But, but I think he saw me, you know, as someone who could be useful to him. And we talked on the phone, not infrequently, which was always uh, kind of exciting, talking to Stranko. What was that influential on you? What, in a positive way, as far as what path you would go forward in. I mean, I know that you had the later the issues with actually living with him and all that, but that moment, that interview, he saw something in you that he felt was special 
in some way? Did that, was that a positive influence on you? Well, I don't know. If he, I, I don't know if he saw anything particularly special about me. I mean, he, he saw an enthusiastic kid that was putting out a decent fanzine with some rudimentary skills that I think he thought could be helpful later on. So, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't think he saw anything particularly promising. Looking back, you don't feel like it was more of a, a positive patriarchal moment. It sounds like it's, you have almost more of a, maybe a negative, it sounds more negative the way you're, the way you address it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's, uh, well, you know, he said something in your interview. I watched the first part of your interview. And he told an anecdote about him going to uh, Tower, I think it was, and right. going to Sam Schwartz. Sam Schwartz, yeah. And submitting the brilliant Secret Agent X. And Schwartz apparently was criticizing him and telling him how he wanted him to do it. And Jim said something to the effect that he thought he was grooming him to be a slave boy. Do you remember that term? It's kind of a weird term that Jim used. And he almost punched him out. Right. You know, he indicated he was being condescending. And, and, you know, I heard that, listened to that a couple of days ago. And it was a little shocking because that's exactly how I felt working for him, except for the punching out part. I never considered that. But I don't know if I'm saying he turned into Sam Schwartz, but that was exactly the dynamic. No, I see you're feeling like a mirror irony in some way. Yeah. I mean, you know, Jim, I mean, Jim obviously has a, you know, a gigantic ego. But I thought he could be somewhat, looking back on it, I think he could be somewhat manipulative. I see. Especially when I was 16, you know, 17 years old. Impressionable. Yeah. I would say this about um, Stranko. I think, I, I love the guy. And you you listen, I mean, there's probably a lot of excitement when I was talking to him. And uh, and something I, I do respect about what he did in the, in the 60s was Stan was just telling everybody, just do it like Kirby, do it like Kirby. And then he actually brought in the influence of like movies and things and different sorts of visuals in a field that like, you know, guys that were really old were still doing it and they were all like stuck in this way. And I feel like he kind of wedged it open creatively for some other stuff where Stan was like, okay, we could kind of get some new stuff going on. And I, and I thought that's important. Well, I think it's fair. I don't know how important it is, but I think that's fair. You know, Kriegstein, I think it was Kriegstein who said very emphatically that comics were not movies. And I think Jim was trying to make comics into movies. I mean, I think that was fundamentally wrongheaded, but that you're right that he brought, you know, that fresh perspective into comics. I mean, with slicing the, slicing the page up into, in, into many more panels, trying to imitate cinematic conventions. You know, it's undeniable he brought that in. I just think in retrospect, it looks pretty just looks pretty hollow. I mean, you, you know, he's still dealing with the same old crap, you know, he's still dealing with all of those, uh, you know, those pulp soap opera conventions that Marvel traded in, he just gave it a new dressing, borrowing from Eisner, and throwing a little dolly in. I mean, he was throwing in all these references. You know, I tend to think a big influence, I, I don't know if you asked him this, but I think a big influence on him might have been Craypax, Guido Craypax, Italian oh, cartoonist. Yeah, I mean, he, he definitely knows about those guys, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Craypax was, was slicing up the page. I don't know if we can see it. I got my Craypax book right here. It's blending, Jim. I can't see it. Oh, yeah, I can't see it. Oh, it's, oh, oh there <laughs> it is. It was in the dark dimension. It's your that book. That's all I'm saying. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I would say also that he's like 
unique personality. He could, he has a lot of different skills. When I met him, it's obviously as like a 40-year-old guy, right? Who So it's a different feeling maybe. But um, one thing I would say is he's very incisive, like from person to person, like he can almost like read minds a little bit. And I'll say that he did, as far as his influence on me, is very positive in that he actually like inspired a lot of my motion comic stuff that I do that he critiques it and and we go back and forth on it. And I guess I just want to get it out there that I I highly respect his work and I just wanted to throw it out there. (laughs) You feel compelled to do that. So, so going back to Fantastic Fanzine, besides the Stranko interview, because there were others, I was interested in, by mail, back and forth, you did an interview with Barry Smith, and he was a kid himself at this point, right? Was he about 19 or 20? Well, Barry is five years older than me. So when I was 15, he was 20, and you know, when I was 16, he was 21. So yes, he, I was corresponding with Barry when he was living in England. That's what I thought. How did that happen? Well, you know, he started out at Marvel. He was he was the best Kirby imitator at Marvel. And of course, I love Kirby. So therefore, I love Barry. And that's why I must have written to him. And I, I must have written to him in care of Marvel. And they must have forwarded the letter to him. And Barry must have written to me. I have a whole file of letters from Barry. Oh, wow. A lot of handwritten letters in Barry's very lovely calligraphic handwriting. And we had, yeah, we had a correspondence. I mean, I forget. I mean, I'd have to revisit all the letters from him to me. I don't have any letters from me to him, thank God. But yeah, we had a, we had a, we had a correspondence. He would send me drawings, which I published in the fanzine. Nice little spot illustrations of, of Marvel characters that he would pencil in ink out of the kindness of his heart. I didn't pay him a penny. And so we had the correspondence going. And then I met Barry. The first time I met him was in New York. Once again, my dad drove me up to Manhattan, and I was probably 16. And Barry was living in an apartment. And so if I was 16, that would have made him 21. And so I go up to the apartment, knock on the door, and he opens it up, and he's like this tall, dapper Englishman, you know, with his great English accent. And I'm just this suburban kid. And I walk in and it's a big apartment. And my recollection is it had a piano, bookcases, nice furniture. It was just sort of overwhelming. And we sat down and I don't remember if I interviewed him or if I or if we just talked, but I spent a few hours with him. And you know, he he too is incredibly gracious and accommodating and and patient with this kid. And later on he told me that that was not his apartment. He was just, it was a friend's apartment and he was staying there because he had no place to live. Marvel wasn't paying him enough to have an apartment like that. Marvel was paying him enough to, you know, have some studio apartment somewhere in the village without heat. Was he actually on the street at one point? I had heard when he first got... I might have heard that. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Marvel probably wasn't paying him very much. I mean, I shouldn't say that without knowing, but I mean, I think I might have heard that myself. But yeah, I think, you know, Marvel wasn't paying artists, like very new artists. Uh, young artists, very much money. I know that when I was offered a job at Marvel, which was exactly at the same time as Stranko offered me the job with him, I don't think I could have survived on the pay that Marvel was was offering me. I forget what it was at that time. But uh, is that the re- main reason why you turned that down? That was the main, yeah. I mean, there were a couple of reasons. Roy Thomas offered me a job at Marvel and gave me the salary. And I asked my dad, you know, because I didn't have any experience living on my own. 
except that, you know, in college when I lived in a dorm and I asked my dad, can I, you know, can I live in New York on this money? And he said, no. <laughs> so I went back to Roy and I said, you know, my father says, uh, you know, I couldn't live in New York. And Roy said, well, that's probably true, but we can give you freelance work to beef it up. So then I thought, well, you know, I'm going to be working for Marvel eight hours a day in the office. Then I'm going to be working for Marvel all night doing freelance work. And that didn't really sound appetizing. And then the other operative factor was that I'd have to give up my car. So, you know, all of these combined, and I, I very politely turned him down. So when you were 17, before, just a couple years before that, we discussed that you went to Rochester Institute of Technology, which was a leading printing school, which I'm sure came in, in handy at some point, it did, but it wasn't what you were thinking it was. Well, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad I went there. It was a it was a academically rigorous school, and unlike anything I'd experienced before, because I kind of, I mean, I kind of slept through high school. I mean, I was a mediocre student. Little was asked of me, and, and little was given. And this was the first rigorous academic environment I'd ever been in, and so I actually had to pay attention. And is that where you were working for the magazine and started to actually do interviews in terms of not not fanzine, but but doing it as part of? Uh, well, they had a, yeah, they had a um, the the college had a um, magazine, a campus magazine, and I got a job there being a reporter, which was good. I mean, I just did stories; they assigned me stories, and so I. You know, I was not only learning things academically about printing and design and typography and so forth, but I was learning something about being a journalist because I was writing stories that I didn't have any personal passion for, but they would assign me stories. And so I had to do research and I had to interview people and then I had to compose the story. I remember I did a, uh, I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but I did a story about the elevators in the campus dorms because the goddamn elevators were so slow. And uh, I learned a lot about Otis elevators. You know, they're one of the big, apparently they're, they're among the big elevator manufacturers in the country. So <laughs> I did my research and I learned a lot about that. So I would do these stories about subjects I, you know, personally had no interest in, which forced me and disciplined me to um, learn how to research. And I, you know, I did that for the year I was there. Now, after that first year, did you transfer directly from there to Montgomery Community College, or did you take a time off? Boy, there was like six months between between those two. I I went to Rochester for a year, came back home, not knowing what I wanted to do or where I wanted to go, but knowing I didn't want to continue in Rochester. You know, knowing that that just wasn't quite right for me. I mean, I didn't want to be a printer. But then not knowing really what I wanted to do with my life. I mean, I was floundering around, which probably accounts for my taking a job with Steranko. Well, yeah, because I, you know, I joke that I asked him a little bit. I was like, well, was it like you were like Professor X and he's like a wayward teen? Like, and uh, he said that you guys um, work together. He didn't say very much about it. <laughs> <laughs> the, like, the, like the Professor Xavier School. Right, right. Well, it'd be like, uh, like that if Professor X were uh, a masochist, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so you, so Montgomery Community College, Northern Virginia Community College, and then working as a clothing salesman. That was, that was all in a certain block of time where you were trying to figure out what to yeah, do. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And you can tell, I mean, just by that resume, you can tell I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. 
Uh, yeah, I was working as a clothing salesman in a, in a jean shop. I mean, it wasn't like a, you know, a, a real clothing salesman. It was, I worked in a, a jean place and by God, I learned a lot about jeans, you know, all the different brands. And I did that for, you know, I, I did that at the same time. I worked in this, you know, I got a, a job and I went to two community colleges and I just took courses I wanted to take. So I took silkscreen printing at Virginia Community College and a couple of other courses. And then I took that creative writing course at Montgomery Community College, which is in the suburbs of Maryland, and probably another course or two there. I couldn't take that many because I was also working. And I didn't, yeah, I just didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I was really at, you know, at ends because I couldn't figure out what to do. I, I, I was probably going through something of a crisis because I knew I didn't want to enter the corporate world. I knew enough to know I didn't want to do that. But I didn't see any alternative to that. So I was stuck. In trying to do my timeline, I wasn't quite sure. Did you end the Fantastic Fanzine completely before you went to work for Steranko, or was there some overlap? Yeah, yeah, I did. I, I think I ended it after I left high school. And and Alan Light published it, right? Yeah, he published like two issues of it, I think. Oh, One okay. or two issues of it. And that caused some problems down the road, right? Yeah, yeah, we had problems too, yeah. I'll have to talk about some people I didn't have problems with, but yeah, he approached... <laughs> well, we like problematic growth. That's like... Yeah, the, right, right. You know. He approached me, I, I guess it was my last year of high school, and he approached me, he was, you know, he was creating a dynasty. And he approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in having him publish the fanzine. And I don't know, for some reason I was, I think it would, he was going to take over all the economic headaches and he was going to deal with all that. And that was, you know, that was never something I was interested in. I was never interested in being a businessman. My dad did all that work. You know, he, he was the one who kept all the books. I was mostly interested in just putting together the magazine. I was never interested in that. So Alan Light came along and he said he would publish it. And we, we struck a deal. I don't know if he was paying me anything or, you know, if he was, it had to be nominal. But he would, he would pay for the printing. He would deal with all that. He would deal with subscriptions. You know, he would just deal with all the stuff I didn't really want to deal with. But the last issue, I'm pretty sure I published that in my last year of high school. And then I went to college where I published a couple of other things. I published a fanzine called Word Balloons, which I thought, was a great sophisticated leap from fantastic fanzine, which it was slightly. And I published a couple of other things when I was in Rochester. I published a little comic of Dennis Fujitaki's work. So I was still somewhat involved in publishing when I was in Rochester. I don't know if that answers your question or not. I think I'm just rambling about it. No, 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 you're not at all. And we can get to a little bit more about Alan Light once you start Comics Journal and that first editorial that you did, uh, but we'll save that. So, Alex, 1973, and now Stryko again. Right. <laughs> You're the Stryko um, guy. Yeah, that's right. So now, you, you already mentioned in 73, because we've kind of gone a little back and forth in our timeline, but um, Roy Thomas, you turned it down, you started working with Stryko, and I've heard some of your accounts of this already, Working with him, and then from right when you stepped in to right when you left, you've mentioned a few things that you felt you weren't able to provide your own creative input into media scene and all that stuff. But was working on media scene in any way influential in how you would put your comics journal and other publications together? It was influential, influential in the sense that 
that experience indicated what I shouldn't do. I'll give you one example. Now, I was 19, and I was relatively clueless. And wayward. You were a wayward teen as well. <laughs> I was wayward. That's, yeah, that might be putting a little romantic spin on it, but yeah, I'll, I'll take wayward. <laughs> you know, but I had some sense of, of things. And so at one time, you know, and all I did, I mean, all I did in his place was scut work. I mean, I did some paste-ups. I mean, I really didn't do anything that was worth a shit. But, but you know, media scene, you've seen it, right? Yeah. Nobody watching this has probably ever seen a copy and, or cares about it. But I have, I, have, I have most of them, I think. Yeah, I, I have most of them, too. But it's not still being published, right? No. I mean, it turned into media. I mean, it was media scene. And then turned yeah, it turned into preview magazine, right? I mean, it was basically a sort of entertainment weekly. Yeah, in the 80s, it turned into entertainment weekly, right? But in the 70s, it was still kind of in that comic scene slash media scene, like newspaper print format, where they still had a comic section and uh, they would talk about movies and things. I think it was once he started publishing, or rather, um, once it started going through Larry Flint and it turned into a slick magazine... Then it was basically like the pre-entertainment weekly of its time, right? It went through Larry Flint? Yeah. See, how do I know this and you don't know this? I don't get it. I, uh, you know, I stopped following Strikers closely after about 1975, but Larry Flint, was he involved in publishing? No, no, no. Yeah. He, uh, like, that. that's who, like, put out the Slick magazine. Really? Yeah. They never met, though. I asked them already. It was Jim and Larry Flint. All right. Well, because you, you, you mentioned, I remember I saw, you talked to Barry Smith, you talked about the magazine. I think there was some mention about some of the naked women in the back of the magazine, like that would kind of skeeve you got you out or something. Oh no, no, I don't think no, no, no I, don't, I don't think so. I, I had no moral judgment about it. It would support the whole enterprise. That stuff, you know. He, I mean, he sold a lot of. Uh, he had a mail order business going, and I gathered that 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 substantially supported. Yeah, financially, right? Because Eros did the same for you guys at some yeah, point. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Absolutely, right, right. I don't remember having any problem with that. I hope I didn't. But um, where was I? So we were uh, working well on media, so you did some pay stubs. Did, did working for that pave the way? But I'll, I'll give you one anecdote. And that is, so as you know, preview, preview, media scene, and then preview, they covered movies, and they, they sort of previewed all the Hollywood movies that were coming out and then all the comic books that were coming out. You know, Serenko was a little he- ahead of his time in foreseeing the moronization of culture where comics become the culture, you know? They become cinema culture. You know, so media scene was full of comics, you know, and movies. But this was before movies had become nothing but comic book movies. So he would have, so before the movie came out, movies came out in the theater he would have previews of them with the title of the movie, a short take, and maybe a still. And he would get these stills from the uh, studios who were sending them to, to him for publicity's sake. So at one point I came to him, and there'd be a synopsis of the plot. Well, you know what? I'm sorry. I, I think these came out after the movie. There were reviews of the movie, ostensibly yeah. reviews, reviews of the yeah. movie. And so I came to him one day, and I said, you know, could I write some reviews, some movie reviews? Because, of course, I, you know, one of my few ambitions was to maybe write film criticism. Yeah, critiques. So I said, you know, I think I could write reviews as good as what you're running, you know, and I, and I pointed out to a, cu- a couple of reviews and I said, this is not very good. And this is just a plot synopsis. And, you know, and the actual critical content of the review was so meager that I thought I could do a better job. And he looked at me and he said, I don't need you to do that. And I said, well, who's writing these reviews anyway? It didn't have a name. You know, they, were, they weren't bylined. And he said, well, he said, I just take studio press releases and rewrite them. 
Wow. And so I remember, I mean, I distinctly remember standing there talking to him about this. And I remember thinking there's something wrong about that. <laughs> Casting off rewritten studio press releases as reviews, as independent reviews appearing in this magazine. And I don't think we talked about it that much. I mean, I think I tried to persuade him that I could maybe, you know, inject a little bit of critical content into the magazine, but he wasn't having it. It's not what he wanted. It's not what the magazine was about. He wasn't interested. So, you know, so in a way, yes, it did influence me in terms of what not to do. Were you living in the house at this same time? Oh, yeah, we were all we were all living in his house. He had, a, he had a gorgeous, big townhouse. So this is a different different place than when you interviewed him a couple of years before. Yeah, yeah. He, the, 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 when I interviewed him, you know, when I was 15 or 16, he was living in a small apartment. And he'd obviously acquired enough success to buy this big Victorian townhouse. It was beautiful. It was at least two floors, maybe three. And, you know, really spacious. And I, I lived on the ground floor with Ken Brusnick. You know who yeah, Ken is? Sure, the letterer. Famous letterer. So he and I were on the ground floor in, in Stranko studio, and his living quarters were, um, were above. And I, I felt about Storanko then as you apparently feel about him now. No, 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 no. I'm not saying I, I mean, I'm 40 year old guy. I'm not, you know, six. I'm not a wayward <laughs> teen that is worshiping him. That's not it. But I want to throw out there a couple things about, about it is at his time in 1970 or 1970 to 72. And then you got it in on him at, at 73 like that. When he put out the history of comics volumes and he was doing illustration for covers and book covers and things, and he's putting out a magazine as a publisher and putting out some pretty interesting designs in general. I don't recall anyone coming to that, to that caliber of expression from a commercial and artistic standpoint before that. You're talking about what year? 70? Looking at that and what he was doing in that, in those few years there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's very few people like that, for one. And I think we should just kind of say that there's very few people at that time, especially that could do that. This, this is before internet, this is before image and before people were just mover, movers and shakers. For where he was at that time, I think that's a pretty interesting person. It's a unique person. And, and that's all I'm saying. And, and I wouldn't want to take credit away from that. But I get what you're saying, because when you actually are with a person day in, day out, and now you're seeing realities of the everyday thing. That's a different experience. And I, and I get what you're saying. I'm not disagreeing with, and what you guys have, I mean, that's before I was born, right? So Yeah, and I don't want you to think I'm conflating my personal experience with my critical judgment. Right, I, right, I, right. I don't think I am. I mean, I try to separate the two. And I think you have to do that with every artist, which is now out of fashion. I like Roman Polanski's films. Right. Because they're great. Right. Well, like, what was like that? I mean, hang didn't out he make, what did he make? A Quaalude Heaven something? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't do that. But no, I try to separate that out. So I'm not, I'm not conflating those two. You know, I, I you know, sure you have you have, you have a point. But when you're when your baseline, and no, I don't want to spend the entire time talking about Jim. But when you're when your baseline is just the most mediocre hack work before before him, yes, yeah, or, or during that period from right, you know, or even there, yeah, with the other people, 1970 to 75, it was it was it was a terrible period in right, totally. mainstream comics. And you're comparing them primarily to mainstream comics and not to other comics. You're not comparing them to the kind of personal expression that you found in underground comics that they were championing long before. I mean, what he was doing is, you know, rearranging 
pulp and comic book cliches in a different way. So depending on how valuable you find that, and I don't find that particularly valuable, you know, your assessment of him will be based on that. Right. right. You know, I was, I was looking, you're looking at like what it could be, what, and there's a lot of amazing creative people that came after. And I get what you're saying. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, I'll tell, I'll, I'll tell you, here's one thing. Here's one area where he, where he might, it might've influenced me. Yeah. I worked for him for three months and that was in 73. I started the comics journal in 76. So that was still, three years later. So I still had three years of, you know, living to do. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was kind of flailing around. And when I was working for him, you know, without going into, you know, into any more details, and I only worked there for like three months. So I knew I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I did know what I didn't want to do. And what I didn't want to do was eat shit. Yeah. Right. And I knew that that if I, continued working for him i would be eating shit yeah and that's like that assistant to stanley kubrick like that guy just that guy got weird yeah, yeah. but kubrick's brilliant i mean nothing against Stranko, but kubrick could kill me and it would i would accept it i mean no i know it's yeah, just that, yeah. that assistant that he had just really like he was warped toward the end of all that so i get what you're saying no no and i and i you know and, and i'm sure kubrick did have his uh idiosyncrasies <laughs> But I think it is a a false analogy, you know, because Kubrick's work, even though I think it ranges all over the place, you know, even though I think Paths of Glory and and Dr. Strangelove are absolute masterpieces, but they're masterpieces on a level that Steranko can't come close to. And that kind of goes to the heart, using that, that analogy, that goes to the heart of the distinction I was trying to make when I started the comics journal between films and comics and what comics could be and what they were capable of, and the level of artistic expression they were capable of. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, I'm leaping a little bit of a hit ahead, but that's, that's the conclusion I came to. Probably over that three-year period from the time I left Steranko until I started the Comics Journal. I educated myself over that period. Well, let's talk about that period, because... That was a, ri- yeah, that was a rich period, I mean, in my life. So you're there at Steranko. Steranko says you got to go away for a few days. I'm doing stuff. And you were like, where am I going to go? I live here. And you have enough and you pack up, uh, you call your friend and you guys just drive into the city and go see Howard Jakin. Is that? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. All right. So, so from that moment, and then it's like, what, what do I do now? But were you already friends with, uh, with Mike Catron? And he was already enrolled at University of Maryland. We were buddies from the time we were about 15, because he was a comics nut and I was a comics nut. We were, we were, we were the same age. I think, I think we're literally one month apart. We Is were he in the high guy school. that picked you up from Steranko's house? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He drove, he drove up from Maryland. He was going to the University of Maryland. And he drove up. He picked me up at Steranko's because Steranko told me to go. Now, Steranko told me I had to leave for a few days so he could paint in an empty house. And so we drove up to New York. We had, I mean, we, we had nothing to do. So we drove up to New York and we crashed around a few places. I'm pretty sure that I stayed at Howard's place one night. And he, he put us up for one night. And when we were up there for a few days. And I, can't, I, I talked to Mike about this recently. and We can't remember who else we stayed with. But we... You know, we banged around New York for a few days. I distinctly remember being in Howard's studio, small studio, and us talking. And of course, Howard, again, is like a few years older than me and old enough to make a difference back then, you know. 
He was a working professional at the time. And then we drove back to Stranko's and Stranko told me that uh, I hadn't been gone long enough, so I'd leave again. So then I went to, uh, I went down to Mike's place for a few days, but then I went back to Stranko's and I stayed there another month or ah, so. Okay. Yeah, I didn't leave at that time. I, I went back and stayed another month or month and a half or something. Like Michael, it's like Michael Carleone. Yeah, exactly. Did Bruce no, not know uh, Shaken at that point? I don't think so. I don't think so. So you knew both of them, but they didn't know each other. No, they, I don't think they did. No. Ken led a very sheltered life at that time, I think. Did he get along with Steranko better than you? Was he able to navigate that better? Ken was far more accommodating than I was. You say that he was a lot more laid back about it or something. He was. He was. He accepted it. And honestly, I mean, I accepted it. There wasn't much I could do but accept it. But I just knew it wasn't a good long-term situation. You know, there was tension. You were getting politi- more and more politicized at this point as well. And like me, you were obsessed with Watergate. I was pretending I was sick to stay home to watch the hearings and things. I was, I was crazy about all of that going on. And you were actually a little older. So you were in college and you, were, you went to, to University of Maryland where your friend was attending. He was in his second year. You went there for one year. I transferred, maybe. yeah. Yeah. And... At that point, so you're you're there, and Nixon in D.C. is imploding, and I, I read that you actually went to the White House the night that Nixon resigned to celebrate. Well, you know, I don't think I was there the night he resigned. I was there a couple of times at what we call the Nixon Death Watch. There was just a group of people, hundreds of people, uh, across the street from the White House who had just set up camp, and people would come and people would go, and some people would just stay there for weeks. And I would join them a couple of times. And of course, it was called the Nixon Death Watch because we were just waiting for him to leave. I was not, I was, unfortunately, I was not there the night, you know, the day or the night he left. But yeah, I was obsessed. We were, we were both obsessed with Watergate. Of course, we were living in, in Washington. So we were reading the Washington Post every day. Were Woodward and Bernstein an influence? Did they make you want to explore the, the reporting angle? They made everybody want to be a journalist. I was a journalism major too, and yeah. that was why. Everybody, I mean, I mean, it was it was it was terrible. The effect they had on journalism schools was terrible. You know, I majored in journalism at the University of Maryland, and yes, I was interested in being a journalist. But we had these huge classes because everybody wanted to be a journalist. Everyone saw the you know the glamour <laughs> of Woodward and Bernstein, and of course, I want I want to think that I wanted to be a real journalist. But as a result of so many people taking journalism classes, the classes I thought were really dumbed down. I remember one class, the, one class assignment was to go home and read the newspaper. And I was thinking, I mean, that, that's like the baseline. I mean, everybody should be doing that anyway. <laughs> and so I remember being frustrated by what, what was being taught and how quickly it was being taught. And I wanted to learn more faster. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons I dropped out. So you dropped out in, in 1975, partly because of that. Were you also just over your head busy because of the rock and roll concert? Yeah, yeah. Mike, Mike and I came up with this idea to put on a rock and roll convention. And I think I dropped out of the university. I think it was, it was either late 74, early 75. I couldn't keep up with classes. We started working on this idea in August or September of 74. And our idea was that if, you know, I put on comic book conventions, so I knew how to put on a convention. You know, I knew the logistics. I knew how to get a hotel. I knew how to get guests. 
Uh, I knew how to put together a dealer's room and we could just duplicate the format of a comics convention to a rock and roll convention. And because rock and roll was so much more popular than comics, we would get so many more people and make so much more money. And then we would take that money and we would start a publishing company. That was our grand plan. You know, we didn't really want to be rock and roll entrepreneurs. We wanted to be publishers. Yeah, make money first. Right. So that was our plan. So we spent literally, you know, almost a year working on this rock and roll convention. We conceived the idea and we put it all together. And I can't even really begin to describe what that was like. It was just, you know, it started, it started slowly and built. And there was a point where we were working literally 16 to 18 hours a day on this. I mean, both of us. And, you know, at some point I couldn't take classes anymore because I wasn't paying attention to them and I wasn't, I couldn't pass them. I couldn't do the work. And I think we both dropped out. And so we put, you know, we put this thing on. It was, uh, it was over the July 4th holiday at a big hotel in downtown Washington, D.C. in 1975. And it came off. We had all the guests and, and we, had, we had a big dealer's room and we had a film. We had a screening room with films. And it was just a complete bust. I mean, we lost more money than we had ever seen in our lives. Wow. So more than ten, more than ten thousand dollars was lost. Yeah, yeah. Well, we lost fifteen thousand. Well, I'll tell you. Well, we we were fifteen thousand dollars in debt, which at that point in my life it was like fifteen million dollars. I mean, I, yeah, especially at that time, that's a lot. I mean, I was nineteen. I was nineteen when we put it on, and uh, I guess I was just yeah. I was turning. I was going to turn twenty in, in September. How much was a joint back then? <laughs> I don't know. I, I've never. I never smoked. I don't know. Okay. That's my unit of uh, measurement. So no. I'm speaking just, of that, not. Hunter S. Thompson is part of this story too. So we should. Yeah, talk we about got that. we we got Hunter S. Thompson to speak there. He was he was a hero of mine. I loved his work. Reading him kept me alive and kept me sane. I would read him in Rolling Stone, and I read uh, I read all of his books, but his uh, On the Campaign Trail, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, which I think might be his masterpiece. You know, I thought that was just such a brilliant book. And it was a brilliant take on politics at that time. I wanted to get, I mean, he, you know, and, and he, I mean, he was synonymous with rock and roll at that time. You know, he was appearing regularly in Rolling Stone and he would make, you know, he, he would often reference rock. So I wanted to get him in there as a kind of political component to the Rock and Roll Expo. And we, I contacted the Rolling Stone Lecture Bureau, which they had at that time and cut the deal. We had to pay them up front to get him to appear, and uh, he did appear. Oh, cool! It was it was shaky. We didn't know he was going to. We didn't know he was going to uh, show up until the last minute. And I had to go out. I had to actually go from the convention, get in my car, and drive to his hotel and pick him up because somehow he was having trouble getting to the convention. So, would it be fair to say that that Mike at Catron was more of a Woodward Bernstein, and you were more of a of a Hunter S. Thompson in terms of your approach to journalism? It, it actually would. Yeah, that's very good. Great. All right. So you did that and you stayed in touch with Thompson to some degree in that you drove to his house at one point, which is a dangerous thing to do. Well, I, I can't say I stayed in touch with him. I saw him like after the convention, the convention ended Sunday and we were, you know, completely demoralized because we realized we did not, in fact, make our fortune in order to start a publishing company and had done quite the opposite. We dug ourselves into a huge hole. And so uh, I think we were just sort of in shock. And the next day, 
for some reason, I got in touch with the uh, Rolling Stone Lecture Bureau, and I don't know why, but I drove down there. They were in D.C., and of course, I was in Maryland. But uh, I drove down there for some reason. I don't remember why. And Hunter Thompson was in the office. And I'd seen him two days earlier, Saturday, I think. And so, he, you know, he knew me, and we started talking. And he had appointments to go to in Washington throughout the city. And he asked me if I would drive him around, you know, chauffeur him around. So I said, fuck yeah, I'll do yeah, that. Yeah, that's great. And uh, so we got in my car and I just drove him around D.C. I would drop him off and he'd say, okay, you know, I'll be back in an hour. And I would, you know, do something and then go pick him up and we go somewhere else. And, you know, in the meantime, when we're in the car, we could talk. And, uh, you know, that was kind of great. And so I did, but, it, you know, I can't say I really knew him. I mean, I was like, you know, this kid who was willing to drive around Washington, D.C. And, and pay him to appear at my failed convention. So, yeah, Mike and I, well, in order, in order to pay our rent and to feed ourselves, we decided to go to San Diego that year, which was either in, I don't know, it was either in late July or early August, right after the convention we put on. And we decided to go to San Diego and sell comics to make money. It's the only thing we could do to figure out how to make money. So this is when you could call San Diego a week before the convention and buy a booth. So we did that. We got a table and we literally made this decision a week before the convention. And uh, we packed up Mike's station wagon, which was this beat up old station wagon. And we got in it and literally drove cross country in one, one drive. Took us, took us 51 hours to drive across the country to San Diego nonstop. And because we were, we were, I guess we were going through Colorado, we went to San Diego on the southern route. And I guess that takes us through Colorado, but we thought we were close enough to Woody Creek, which is where Thompson lives. We might as well visit him. <laughs> so we were still 19 at this time. So we thought, yeah, that, you know, that, that'd be a good idea to visit Hunter. And, you know, he kind of knew us because, you know, we paid him a lot of money and, you know, and I drove him around D.C. So uh, a completely unannounced. I guess I didn't have his phone number, but I did have, I don't know if I had an address or I just had some sense that he lived in Woody Creek and I'd find him, but we went to Woody <laughs> Creek and somebody must have told us he lives like way up the hill, which he writes about. So he lived up this long winding road that goes up the mountain and he lives at the top of this fucking mountain. And we drove all the way up there, you know, got out of the car, knocked on the door. There was a there was a huge peacock in a uh, cage next to the front door. It's the only thing I really remember, <laughs> which seemed very Hunter Thompson-ish, you know, and knocked on the door. And not, I mean, in retrospect, that's crazy because, you know, he might have shot us or something, <laughs> but no one answered. I mean, he, he probably wasn't there. No, it sounds like a Doonesbury cartoon. I mean, yeah. the way you're describing it. Did you take a whiz anywhere around the property? We did not have the wherewithal to do that. I remember getting back in the car and going down. And when you're going down, the cliff is on your right. And I remember that just being a terrifying fucking drive down. So I have a fear of heights and sharks, so yeah, I get yeah. that. Yeah. I fear of so yeah, because the music yeah. magazine was called Sounds Fine. So when you, were, when you wanted to be a publisher, when you were putting the rock and roll convention, was that you wanted to be like a music publisher? Or were you, were you thinking about comics criticism still at this point? No, look, you know, I don't, I don't know what I was thinking about. I'm not sure I was thinking about anything. I mean, I was scrambling to make ends meet. I didn't have a job. Um, we owed all this money. I got a job right away, a full-time job, a horrible job, because we had to pay back a lot of money. You know, friends had loaned us money. 
we had to pay this back. So I got a, I got a full-time job as, as a designer at a printing company. Mike got a job doing something. And so we scraped some money together. But then, you know, I couldn't, I, I, I'm just not built so that I can just go to work every day and come home and live like that. Yeah, I, I couldn't do it. So the one thing that came out of the rock and roll convention is we had a huge mailing list. We had a mailing list of several thousand people, all presumably rock fans. And a friend of mine who owned a bookstore at the time told me he would finance a magazine if we could put it all together. And so we created Sounds Fine, which was a rock magazine. Now, honestly, I mean, I, I, I shouldn't speak for Mike, but I don't think either one of us had that deep an interest in rock. I mean, we had a, a dilettantish interest in rock. And really, in all honesty, we were, you know, using the rock and roll convention opportunistically to raise money to establish a publishing company, which is what we really wanted to do. But, you know, he said he would finance a rock magazine. So by God, we were going to put together a rock magazine. Yeah. So that was more that was more introduced upon you, it sounds like. Yeah, but it was but, you know, but it, it, it was part of our passion of publishing. I mean, we, we wanted to publish. And so this gave us the opportunity to conceptualize a magazine, to editorially direct it, to solicit essays and articles and reviews. Ted White, you know who Ted White is? No. Science fiction author who's also a comics fan. He lived in, um, I think he lived in Arlington, Virginia, so he was sort of a neighbor. And uh, he, was, he was also older than us, but he was a comics fan and uh, a science fiction author. So our interests intersected. And he was also an enormous music fan and critic. And so we enlisted him to write a big column. And it was a column on basically avant-garde rock music. Oh, wow. That's a cool combination of uh, perspective in one person to write an article like that. Yeah. And Ted knew his shit. I mean, I didn't know anything. But Ted really had a great grasp of what was going on in the avant-garde of rock music at that time. You know, we just trusted him because we couldn't assess it. But he would write these enormous fucking columns. I mean, he was like a machine. He wrote these columns that must have been five, six, seven, eight thousand word columns. And we just let him go. And we thought we were doing some good. We were thought, well, you know, if we're going to do this rock magazine, let's introduce people to, you know, Mott the Hoople or whatever the hell he was writing about. You know, and we would also, you know, we'd have articles about Dylan and the Beatles and the Stones and but it gave us the opportunity to employ these skills that we loved using, you know, that I honed doing the fanzine. You know, we used artists, comic artists, to do covers for Sounds Fine. David Mazzucchelli did one. Yeah, a number of, a number of cartoonists who, I, you know, who would go on to. How, how many issues were there of Sounds Fine? About 20, maybe 26. Yeah, like so that's a pretty good chapter in your life right there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, we would do it. It, it would come out, I think it was monthly, and we would crank it out. And we were excited to do it. Never made any goddamn money. I don't know if Mike and I actually made money on it. I don't think so. I think our investor just kind of broke even and he invested money occasionally. But we were, you know, we were excited to do it. It gave me the opportunity to write um, movie reviews. There you go. Finally. Since it was our, our magazine, we could do whatever we wanted. I could write, you know, reviews of movies in it. I remember writing a review of, um, no, it's a Kubrick film, Barry Lyndon. Oh, I love that. I, a lot of people don't like it, but I love that movie. Well, my review is very positive. I haven't seen it since, but um, I remember loving <laughs> it. 
so yeah, so that, I mean, that, that was, it, it was great just doing that. You know, we, we, we set up a place, I had a two bedroom apartment. I think we had one bedroom that was set up as a kind of a studio where we could put out the magazine, kind of honing our, our skills. And then in 1976, we started publishing the journal, but we actually put, we actually put out both of those at the same time. Oh, okay. For a while. So they actually were side by side for at yeah. one point. Yeah. So you guys purchased the rights to the new Nostalgia Journal or Nostalgia Journal. How'd that come about as far as get, did you, did you pay, pay for that? No, I mean, Purchase was putting a spin on it. I mean, they basically gave it to us. Okay. They just didn't want to do it anymore. Okay. No, they, they, were, they were burned out. We approached them because we could see they were burned out and they were competing with the buyer's guide and we thought we could do a better job and we thought we could infuse it with some fresh young blood. And we offered to take it over. And they were really only too happy to give it to us. That's what Le- uh, Paul Levitt said about his fanzine. He said the same thing. They just kind of, it wasn't really a purchase. It was just a comic reader. Over. Yeah. Yeah. They were, yeah, they were, they were tired. And they were burned out. You know, they were tired of fighting. It was one slog for them because they were competing with Gallon Light and the Buyer's Guide. Then Light was just using all of these underhanded tactics to undermine them and sabotage them. And we thought we could withstand all of that and make a go of it, you know, which we didn't really because we turned it from an ad from from an advertising based periodical to a to a more content driven periodical. But they just gave it to us. They gave us the mailing list, whatever contents they had. And uh, I mean, that was it. And they said, good luck. And then then it was ours. And then we used I think we used the same printer we used for the uh, for the music magazine. We had a local printer who printed it, so we had that locked in. And we had, a, and, and then we had a new mailing list from them, and we had a, an advertiser base, so we were off and running. Yeah, and so then in that first issue, which it ran under the name of Nostalgia Journal for a few issues, then it went to to Comics Journal, but you wrote an editorial, and Alan Light and Murray Bischoff were mentioned in it, <laughs> right? And so, yeah, right. You know, so tell us about that first oh, editorial and Alan Light well, and the reaction and all that. Yeah, I mean, it was... it was Because you, you, like, you like to poke the bear, right? I must have, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I haven't looked at that in a long time, but my recollection of it is that it was immense and that it was incredibly well-researched and that I just threw everything I had into it and I basically chronicled what I thought were all of... Alan Light's professional transgressions. And uh, I was making the case <laughs> that, you know, his, uh, the, the, the comics buyer's guide and, and his publishing efforts were fundamentally unethical. Okay. And of course, I, you know, I later learned that, you know, you don't acquire an advertising base based on your moral superiority. It's based on uh, your subscriber list. So, you know, so I mean, I, I mean that uh, that article on I don't I mean it's like it's like it seems like three hundred years ago. It caused a big stir. A lot of people were I mean a lot of people were on our side. A lot of people hated it. I guess it was the perfect keynote to the comics journal. You know, <laughs> Start very, off with a bang. It was very very you know it was very partisan. Wasn't this all on purpose to some degree? I mean, this is the way to launch something is to be provocative. You you got a buzz from it. Well. That wasn't the purpose. I mean, the purpose was to go out with both guns blazing and to say, this is what we stand for. This is what we stand against. 
this is why we're doing this. We want to give you an alternative to this. We want to provide an alternative to this. And it was frankly, you know, that the journal, I mean, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to aggrandize it too much, but I mean, we want, I wanted people to recognize what was going, what was going on, what was happening and, and uh, how he, how he was behaving. And I mean, the whole world is different. I mean, if you look at it now, it's just all this penny any nonsense, you know, I mean. Are, are you saying that, um, are you saying that hashtags aren't good enough journalism for you? <laughs> right, right. I guess. Is that what you're trying I to guess, say? I, I, maybe we've come full circle. I mean, you know, back then, I mean, there really wasn't any comics journalism to speak of. There was one magazine called Inside Comics that was uh, edited by a guy named Joe Brancatelli that lasted about six issues. And it was the closest comics had come to that point to real journalism. Uh, but like I said, it lasted like six issues, so it barely existed. So, I, re- I you know, the, the kind of journals I read tend to be more in the uh, medical field. I read a lot of those. But I will say, and and just as I, you know, was complimenting Steranko a bit earlier, I will say that your periodical, your your comics journal that you've done with Katrin and Kim Thompson, all that, but you put together the closest thing that is possible to those journals that I'm that I read that are in a totally different branch, your comics journal really is the it of that aspiration. I, and I do want you to know, I feel that way about you and what you've done. And that I do feel that you're also a very special and unique person as well. <laughs> just so you understand where I'm at with you and that, and that what you've done with comic history, you know, I've gone through, I, I think I've gone through all of them up to like 2005 or something. I was just going to suggest what I was saying about the buzz that you came in there strategically with a little bit of Charles Foster Kane to you. I mean, that that's what I'm suggesting. Is there some truth in that? Yeah. yeah. In fact, we even had uh, echoing Citizen Kane. We even had like a list of our principles. Do you remember? I don't know if you, I don't, I don't know if you had the. Well, yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm sure we did that as a kind of ironic homage to Citizen Kane. So yes, we, I mean, we, we knew what we were doing and we knew we were causing a stir because in, in comic circles back then, people didn't cause stirs. I mean, there was no journalism. I mean, it was all, it was all the kind of fanzines that I published when I was a teenager. It was, you know, worshipful and your job was to worship the artist and the, jo- and the artist's job was to be worshipped. And the companies were, were sacrosanct. You didn't question them or their motives or, or their practices. And I was starting to question all of that, you know, and that goes back to what I was, what I was reading. And that goes back to my own education between 73 and 76 that we were talking about earlier. The wider world had been introduced to me and I saw how provincial the comics world was. It was this terrible backwater, cultural, I mean, a cultural backwater, a moral backwater. and. I thought that that ought to be questioned. So let, let me ask you a question about, so although you were doing new stuff, but when you look at the whole thing at once, is there a formula there? And I'm just going to kind of throw it out there as a question, just to see how you, how you feel about the question and, and the answer is exploring other genres, be anti-superhero, disparage work for hire, mock editor-in-chiefs, and then maybe just bust balls of random, or not maybe random, but just of particular creators. And is that the formula? Or is that wrong to say that that's a formula? Well, I think it's a little too reductionist. I mean, everything you said 
would have been included in what we did over the next 30 years. But I do think that's a little reductionist, yeah. And, you know, I mean, I should say it also, it took us a while to gain our footing. It wasn't like, I mean, I, I kind of had an idea of what I wanted to do, but I didn't start off having any fully formed ideas about us challenging the major companies that were putting out comics. That evolved from where I started. And I think everything you just enumerated became an inevitable consequence of that. I mean, I think inevitably we had to do all of that. You know, we had to challenge work for hire. We had to give artists who were in effect dissidents space to vent their grievances. I remember running pieces by Steve Gerber and uh, Frank Bruner, people who would speak out about the practices under which they were suffering. And this had never been done before. And we felt this was the time to do it. So we encouraged artists to do that. I mean, in our interviews, we would talk about this. And, you know, the, yeah, and the interviews are genius. Comic Journal has the best interviews, yes. Well, in our interviews, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, there, there was a point where we started, I mean, it took a few years, but I always wanted to publish good interviews. And just some names, just so the audience, I don't know if they know, but Bill Gaines, Harvey Kurtzman, Jack Kirby, Gil Kane, Robert Crumb, Howard Chaikin. I mean, a slew of people, amazing, unique people. And you guys really got into thought-provoking discussions with them. Yeah, and we, and we interviewed a spectrum of artists, like people in the previous generation. This is a, uh, th- this is a, a detour, but I am somewhat disheartened by what I perceive to be the ahistorical bent of the younger generation. So many younger cartoonists just don't seem to care about what's preceded them. And where it all came from. I mean, unless they can criticize the, you know, political or cultural content of it, you know, which is easy to do. But I remember, you know, when I was a kid, I was interviewing guys who were 20 years older, 30 years older than me. And I was, you know, and, and as I got older and I got into my 20s, I became much more curious about people like Harvey Kurtzman. You guys had a C.C. Beck saying quite a few interesting things. Yeah, too. yeah. I interviewed C.C. Beck in his place in Florida. And uh, he was a much older guy than me at that time. You know, he was in his, uh, well, he was probably about my age now, but I was probably about in my late 20s. And I was intensely curious about his career and his life and what doing comics was like when he was doing them in the 40s and 50s. Yeah, it's interesting because even though you're obviously of a left-wing political uh, mindset, you still were printing interesting things from creators like, because C.C. Beck was writing kind of more right-wing stuff sometimes, right? Well, he, you know, he, he was more curmudgeonly than right-wing, I think. I don't think he had, I don't think he had any coherent ideology. <laughs> I understand, okay. A little, more, a little more conservative, but he was a cranky guy, and I, and yeah. I appreciated that. And then Rick Marshall, whom we've had on the show before. Rick does have a coherent right-wing ideology, yeah. But he's also like an amazing historian, right? He's a great historian, yeah. He knows more about comics than most people are going to ever ever know. I was very nervous about that interview. I thought that it was going to because his politics are not mine. And it's one of my favorite interviews that we did on this. He's a just delight to talk to for hours Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of have to twist Jim's arm to do it a little bit. But he got into it actually a lot. So well, Rick, yeah. Well, I mean, Rick and I keep our politics more, mostly separate. 
and you know we bonded frankly over our love of comics and our, and our love of uh, the same artist i mean rig is really peculiar because he's one of the few members of the right wing who's actually cultivated right he knows a lot <laughs> yeah that was my that was my impression i just didn't say it out loud i'll i'll say i'll say all these things out loud <laughs> But, you know, I mean, he's got, you know, he's got wonderful taste, does exquisite taste, and he's a great historian. We, we transcended our political differences. Right. And you've published, I mean, quite a few things that with his name on it, obviously. So clearly there's a mutual respect. And, and, I, and I think the younger generation needs to learn from these kind of interactions. But I'm going to throw out some sentences that are a little, I don't want to say controversial, but, but you probably know some of these, uh, I'm sure. But there are times when the comic journal would really bust someone's chops pretty good. So obviously, um, you wrote in uh, what issue thirty-seven. Steranko has a quick, violent temper. He doesn't like being questioned about improprieties he may have approved knowingly or unknowingly about Don McGregor in the Journal Forty-Four. This book's icons also display McGregor's vast literary heritage. He is the paradigmatic member of the post-literate generation, the first generation to grow up on and embrace movies and television, which isn't bad. You said about Jim, okay, not you didn't, but someone else did about Jim Starlin. Starlin has applied his meager talents to writing and drawing an overpriced, gaudily produced, forgettably inane Marvel comic. And that, that one's harsh a little bit. But I think of Bill, Bill Mantlo, someone wrote, Every day there is more of the cheap, shallow trash you revel in, defend, and produce. And every day there are more people to stand up for it with you. I personally, and then someone else wrote, I can find nothing of interest in your current comics writing. They're just more bricks in the wall of Marvel banality. You want me to comment on that? <laughs> well, I'm just saying it's a different, interesting trend in that, yeah, like you'd, you guys would zero in on this stuff. It was, you know, I think that was all absolutely essential to put out there. I think these com I mean these comics had gone far too long without being without being uh criticized and finally the time had come to apply mature critical standards to what were essentially just relentlessly idiotic and adolescent crap the comics traded in for its entire existence you know with with very few exceptions you know, comics is just such a peculiar medium and industry. Comic books I'm talking about specifically. But, but the history of comic books is just, it's just a history of such, just crap, you know. It's just, and, you know, and, and my feeling then was that it doesn't have to be that way. There, there, can be, there can be work of genuine aesthetic value. What do you think of this sentence? McGregor is peddling as sensitive writing is just the emotional equivalent of pornography. Looking back, do you feel like these are true statements? I think they're defensible and arguable critical statements, yeah. Did Kim Thompson moderate you a little bit in terms of that? The, the, I mean, when he was there, because I've heard him in interviews explain things that you'd say, you know, and he would say, well, I understand why people were offended by Gary's piece, but they're not quite hearing it right. You know, and how helpful or how essential was he to Comics Journal at this point, partly because of that tempering of your, let's say, honesty? Well, several of the harshest uh, things that you just read were by Kim. <laughs> yeah, that one was the porno, uh, porno McGregor 
hashtag Porno McGregor. Now it would just be hashtag Porno McGregor is how that would be now with the current generation. Right. Yeah. I recalled that when you, when you read it. <laughs> Kim actually wrote that. That's cool. Kim was not a moderating influence at that time. Actually, he was never a moderating influence. He might have tried to be occasionally, but probably never succeeded. <laughs> I, I probably became more militant, and Kim probably became less militant over the years. Now, you know, it's funny because you're talking about, you, you, just, you just quoted Kim's review of Don McGregor's, what was the name of the book? Was it Detectives, Inc.? Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably, yeah, because that was Journal 59. But now, Kim loved McGregor's work. Absolutely loved it. I mean, if you go back to fanzines that Kim contributed to, I guess in the early 70s, you'll see a lot of rave reviews of Don McGregor from Kim. And Kim, too, had the scales lifted from his eyes at some point and recognized that McGregor, you know, was a terrible writer. So I think we were both undergoing an education throughout the early days of the Comics Journal. And we were very much in sync. I think Kim started moderating his views at some point. And at some point, I think I hardened my views. Okay, so you hardened him as in, like, you feel more specifically and more intensely about the same kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I feel more, I feel, I, I felt more strongly than ever that, you know, the comics were capable of a certain level of aesthetic expression and that artists who were doing lousy work, you know, were really confounding the medium by doing that. Right. Because, I mean, just because a 12-year-old kid buys it doesn't mean it's good, right? Yeah, but there can be, you know, there can be good comics for 12-year-olds. But yeah, of course, of course. I mean, comics have always appealed to children. And that's why they've gotten away with so much junk. There's so much good information here that we're going to have to carry this into a sequel episode. Stay tuned, everybody, in two weeks for part two of the Gary Groth interview. 